Well, in honor of Women's History Month, Keeley Companies is shining a much-deserved light on the talented women whose innovation and dedication allows them to achieve phenomenal growth and success each year. Today, we celebrate Courtney V. She is a wonderful field safety coordinator for Keeley Companies. Courtney has been in the construction industry for five years, and she'll be the very first one to tell you that entering a male-dominated industry as a young woman was intimidating at first. Yet, as she cultivated her career, she became a confident, trusted, and respected team member. When asked what advice she'd give to young women starting out in this industry, she said, well, there are three things you need to focus on when starting in this industry, and they are communication, confidence, and the ability to build relationships. She also went on to say the whole goal, really, is to build relationships and to not be afraid to stand up and speak your mind. Courtney V, thank you for the challenge and the encouragement. And my friends out there listening, happy Women's History Month from Keeley Companies and from all of us at the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Before we get into today's episode, an episode, by the way, that you are going to love, you're going to love it. I want you to take just a moment to look around the space that you find yourself in right now. If you're at your desk, what do you notice around you? What do you see on the bookshelves? What do you see directly in front? Go ahead, take a look. If you're driving, what's in front of the windshield right now? Go ahead and look into the rearview mirror. Look at that little face staring back at you. What do you notice around you? If you're lucky enough to be poolside, what color is the water? What color is the umbrella above? If you're really lucky, what color is the umbrella in your drink? I've always thought that in life, sometimes the little things that we take for granted, we should not. Because it turns out that the little things aren't. One of the things we take for granted, perhaps more than anything else, is the ability for so many of us just to see, to take in the beauty of the world around us. But what happens when that beauty fades? What happens when you are no longer able to perceive the world through your eyes? This was the reality that stared back at our guest today. Her name is Christine Ha. Christine has a remarkable story that includes the loss of the ability to see. But the real power of this story is what Christine was still able to perceive as possible even after the blindness. She is an accomplished chef. She competed with a gentleman you may have heard of. Let me know if you've ever heard of this name. Gordon Ramsay as the judge and became the master chef herself. Really, I want you to think about this just for a moment before I bring on Christine. She cannot see the ingredients. She cannot see how cooked the food is directly in front of her. She cannot see the judges' faces. She cannot see what is to her left or to her right. And yet this woman goes on to become a master chef. It's an incredible, remarkable story. She's going to share a little bit about her time on that show. She's going to share a little bit about her courage for life. And she's going to share a little bit about the perspective that not only allowed her to become the success that she is, but also will teach you, encourage you, inspire you to become remarkably successful and encouraged in your journey. My friends, I don't know where you are right now. I don't know what you're looking at right now, but I encourage you to sit back, consider taking some notes, and get ready to be inspired by my friend, and now yours. Her name is Christine Ha. Christine, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thanks for having me, John. Well, like we were just talking before I hit record, this is such an honor to have you on our show. But for those who somehow have not heard your name or seen you somewhere along the way or been to one of your restaurants, if someone just bumps into you in a grocery store 
or somebody sees you outside on the street or, you know, you're walking the dog, whatever it might be. And they say, Hey, uh, my name's John, what's yours? And you say, Christine. And then they ask you, what do you do for a living? Christine, how do you respond to that? What do you do for a living? You know, John, it's so funny that that's the first question you asked me because I always struggle with that question. Like, for example, when, you know, I used to go to the yoga studio before this pandemic, uh, people would be asked to introduce themselves to other people around us. And anytime someone says, hi, I'm so-and-so and I'm a teacher. And for me, I'm like, I don't, I feel like for me, it's such a loaded question right. because, you know, I don't necessarily want to brag about who I am and reveal that, oh, you know, I'm not going to say I won MasterChef season three or uh, I'm a blind chef. So for me, I'm just like, I, I kind of started breaking it down to saying I'm in entertainment uh, and culinary. So usually that's how I'll answer. I'll be like, I'm in culinary and in entertainment. And then they might probe more. And then I might say, well, now I would probably say, oh, I, I own two restaurants in Houston. So that's probably what I would say. And I'm also a, a writer uh, by trade before all of the culinary stuff. So see what I mean? Like it becomes like a load of questions. Point, There's yeah. so many answers to it. I don't know how to answer. Well, it's an awesome answer. And we're going to unpack some of what you shared a moment ago, not by starting with your restaurants in Houston or what you write about or your incredible cooking. We'll get there in a moment. But let's go all the way back, May 9th, 1979, even before then, a few years, I think four years before that, mom and dad left their homeland and they came to the United States. Would you talk about why they left Vietnam? So they were not married at the time. They were in a courtship and um, they lived in what was then Saigon, now Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. And for those of us who remember history, that was the Vietnam War. The fall of Saigon happened on April 30th, 1975. Mm. Uh, they escaped out of Saigon, I want to say about a day or two before the fall of Saigon. So the town was getting ready. Uh, they knew that the North was going to roll in soon and take over the city uh, and the South would surrender. So everyone was kind of scrambling, trying to figure out what to do. And my dad told me that he ran to my mom's house, asked her mother and her eldest brother for permission to take her hand in marriage or pretty much. And then she just took off with my dad. They ran to the ship port and were able to get on a U.S. naval ship. This amazing story of, you know, from the fall to the rise and eventually to the United States and, and eventually to California. We're on May 9th, 1979. They're going to deliver a little package good named Christine. So Christine, talk about your childhood growing up. Back in Vietnam, my father was an architect. My mother was uh, in university still, and she was, I believe, a triple major. My mom's English was very good. My dad was still learning English. They ended up in California because they moved from Pennsylvania because the weather was so cold there. Being from you know, Vietnam, where the climate is much milder or warmer or hotter, or however you would like to uh, say, they were just so not used to the snow. So they said, we need to find a place with better climate. So they ended up in California where a lot of my relatives were when they came from Vietnam. So I was born there. Uh, moved to tech, Houston, grew up mostly in Houston. You know, I was an only child. I was kind of straddling, obviously, two different generations between myself and my parents and also two different cultures because I was born and raised in the U.S., but my parents were born and raised in Vietnam. There were a lot of cultural differences. Uh, for example, at home, I was only allowed to speak Vietnamese. At school, I had to speak English. At home, we mostly ate Vietnamese food. At school, if I, you know, was lucky that day, my mom gave me money for lunch, I would eat American food. So I was kind of really struggling between these two cultures. But it, it wasn't until I got older that I looked back and I was more proud of my heritage instead of feeling ashamed of it. And so that's when I decided I wanted to learn to cook the foods of my youth and the foods that my mom cooked for me when I was growing up. And so, uh, you know, I, when I was at college, my undergraduate studies, I was at University of Texas in Austin. I decided to, at that point, teach myself how to cook because my mom actually passed away when I was younger and she didn't leave me any recipes nor teach me how to cook. So I had to read cookbooks and start from scratch and teach myself how to cook. And, and that's really kind of how I got into cooking and, and what it was like to kind of grow up, I think, in a Vietnamese American household. Thank you. You shared quite a bit, and I need to learn a little bit more about all of it. The, the first is this, growing up, 
you said, I, you know, I kind of had two cultures, John. I had this American culture when the sun was up and then when the sun set or before it rose, I have this Vietnamese culture, the culture of my family. Did you feel like you were both? Did you feel like you were neither or is it somewhere in between? I think growing up, I felt like I was neither, but now I've reconciled and I feel like I'm both. And, right. it, um, you know, I, I think that's how a lot of Asian Americans feel, um, especially like first and second generation Americans that whose parents came from another country is that initially also as a child, you're, you know, I had the mentality of just trying to fit in with my friends and my classmates. So for me, eating pork belly or oxtail or things that, you know, reeked of fish sauce was definitely not cool and it didn't make me more popular. So those were things that I was actually ashamed of growing up. Mm. Uh, but now I look back on it and I feel like I'm so blessed to have this enriched childhood where I knew more things than, you know, um, maybe some of my friends did because I was able to eat so many different things, learn about different cultures um, and just, you know, speak more than one language. Right. Your, your mother, I understand, was a magnificent chef, but she wouldn't let you hang out in the kitchen with her. I, I was amazed in reading your story to learn that. Tell me about that. I'm an only child and she is also naturally over overprotective. So she was the kind of person that was like, don't walk around with scissors in your hand, not necessarily even run around with scissors in your hand, but she's like, be very careful. So she wouldn't let me touch a knife. She wouldn't let me near the hot stove. The only thing that I could do in the kitchen was help her mix the filling for egg rolls. Mm. You know, she just felt like I was too young. I should just be studying and playing. I don't really need to help with kitchen chores and cooking. I didn't really have a place in the kitchen, nor at the time did I even really desire to. I was all about, you know, eating her good foods, but not necessarily helping her out with those chores. So I feel like I did miss out a lot, I think, on my childhood because I didn't get to learn to cook from her and my, my grandmother. Tell me, how long was your mother sick before she passed away? It was almost to a year to the date. And as a young girl growing up in Texas, did, did you recognize what was going on with your mom? I mean, you were 13-ish when she was diagnosed and then 14 when she died. I was old enough to know what cancer was, but I was still too young and naive to, to have it really hit home that cancer can strike your own nuclear family. I mean, cancer was kind of something that you hear about in the movies, or maybe you hear about someone's grandparent having, but at that age, when you're an adolescent, you don't really think of cancer as something that would happen to one of your parents. And my mom, you know, as much as I probably denied it then because I was going through my rebellious adolescence stage, you know, she was the most important person to me in my life. So for me, I went through a very long period of denial. Uh, I was actually very angry, I think, as well at her for being sick, even though it's obviously not her fault. Yeah. Uh, but I think I was angry because I felt like she was taking away my childhood and my innocence and my normalcy. So you go through this indescribable loss as a 14-year-old girl and she leaves you not only without a mother, but she left you this, this, this matriarch of your family and this chef within your family with no recipes. I'm, I'm just curious, did you re recognize at the time what this loss would mean to you going forward? Like not only the loss of a mom, but a loss of like a connection back to your heritage. No, I, I think I didn't know it at the time. I mean, at, at the time I was just, my world had turned upside down, especially, you know, even after she passed away, my father just felt like he needed to take time off and, and he traveled back to Vietnam actually for the first time since they'd left the year after she passed away. Um, he kind of just wanted to find himself again and just take time to grieve. So he actually sent me to back to Southern California to live with relatives. So not only did I lose my mom at the time, I sort of also felt like I lost my dad temporarily it was just a very strange time and it was so long ago, but I, I can remember just the pain that was like indescribable in my gut that, you know, I lost a parent. Yeah. Just kind of losing that connection to her home cooking, but 
the fortunate thing was I, you know, I got to go live with my grandparents and my aunts and uncles, and we were a full house in California and they definitely cooked a lot of Vietnamese food. So I still kept eating very well, at least. Well, you ate well. You, congratulations on that. You eventually graduate high school. You go to college at University of Texas at Austin. I think you majored in business with what, IT and finance. That's right. You and I share that background. So that was both of our majors. But at about the age of 20, your life takes another radical turn. Talk about that. I was driving home from my summer internship in uh, investment banking. And I was still in Austin for that summer. And I noticed that my eye was blurry. One of my eyes, the vision in it was blurry. So I assumed that it was my contact lens that maybe there was, it was just, there was a smudge on it. I went home, I took the contact lens out. I cleaned it. I popped it back in still blurry. So I threw that disposable lens out. I opened a new one, put it in my eye, still blurry. Mm. So I thought that's strange. There's definitely something wrong with my vision. I had no idea what it could be. So I just made an appointment with an optometrist to get my eyes checked out. And then within a few days, uh, I was at the optometrist's office. They told me that whatever was the issue was not, does not have to do with my eye, but was actually neurological. And it could be something much more serious, like a brain tumor. At 20 years old, that was not what I was expecting either to hear that I might have some cancer in my brain or some kind of disease that I'd never heard of. So that was kind of another time in my life where I felt like things were starting to turn upside down. Christine, did they know that you would be losing your eyesight? They had told me that it was a possibility, but they never really mentioned it. I think the beginning, they just said, you know, this will probably be temporary, this vision loss. We're going to pump you full of IV steroids to make the inflammation go down in your optic nerve. And you should be regaining your vision back. That was my hope. But even after that first bout of optic nerve inflammation, and they gave me the steroid treatment, my vision did get a little better, but it never fully returned in my eye. So at that point, I, I think that the idea of vision loss was something that I thought would happen far away in my life, but I right. thought it would be a possibility as it becomes clearer that it's going to happen sooner than far away in your life, do you begin to look at things differently? Do you look at the sunset and trees turning and life and children and food differently than you did before you realized you might be losing your eyesight? I looked at things differently more in a metaphorical sense or a figurative sense, I guess. Not, I, I don't think I literally looked at things. I was like, this might be the last time I see this or remember this. But for me, my perspective shifted, meaning things that I used to think were so important Hmm. definitely were not so much anymore. So the fact that perhaps I was working at a job that paid very well, but that I wasn't happy at, it made me realize like, Hey, life is short and you never know when things might change completely in your life. So you should really try to make things enjoyable for your life, whether it's doing a career change, going back to school. So I think my perspective definitely changed in how I viewed things in a figurative way. This illness that you're dealing with, it it becomes even more than blurriness and in even candidly more than blindness. Would you talk about some of the symptoms that you felt as you moved through your early 20s? Sure. Initially, I was misdiagnosed with multiple sclerosis because they did figure out that it was an autoimmune condition that affected my neurological system. They thought it was MS because that was kind of the more common disease. So the doctors put me on a lot of MS treatment, but year after year, I would still get multiple uh, attacks and exacerbations. So they were starting to think like maybe it wasn't MS. I had many symptoms, you know, in addition to the uh, optic nerve inflammation, which affected my vision. I also had spinal cord inflammation. So that involved at its best, just tingliness in my fingers and my toes. But at its worst, I was completely paralyzed from the neck down within a matter of days. So imagine if your foot were asleep, but you know, no matter how much you stomped around to try to get feeling back into it, I couldn't. So it eventually went from like tingly toes to my foot feeling always asleep to a few days later, just being completely paralyzed from the neck down and unable to sit up by myself, use my hands, move my toes, 
the strange thing was everything above my neck still worked. So I could talk, my brain was still functioning fine. I felt very much so like an adult that was trapped in an infant's body because I couldn't control anything. And no matter how much I willed to be able to move my hand to, to grip a glass of water, I just couldn't. And it was so frustrating. But, you know, in, in addition to the optic nerve inflammation, I had the spinal cord inflammation that also affected like my ability to use the restrooms. I had like incontinence, but not in the way where, sorry, this might be too much, but I'm totally being honest with you. So my bladder would not be able to release itself. So I do remember one night, I thought it was strange that I hadn't gone to the restroom in so long. And I thought naturally, oh, if I keep drinking glass after glass after glass of water, eventually my bladder would be so full, it would have to release, but it didn't. And I don't think I went to the restroom for almost 24 hours. I called the doctor on call and he was like, you need to go to the ER right now. That was kind of the start of that very bad exacerbation, probably the worst that I've had in my life. That was basically my spinal cord being completely inflamed and nothing below my neck was working including my bladder. Ultimately, you're, you're diagnosed with something that I'd never heard of before called NMO. W mm -hmm. Would you describe what this is? How common is it? And then ultimately, how do you push back against it? You know, like I said, I was initially misdiagnosed with MS. It turns out a few years later, I was correctly diagnosed with neuromyelitis optica uh, or NMO for short. And it's similar to MS and it's an autoimmune condition that does affect the neurological system. It's a rarer form. It tends to affect both sides of the body instead of just one side of the body like MS. Mm. And it, it tends to affect mostly the optic nerve and the spinal cord, not so much the brain as MS does. At the time when I was diagnosed, I could not find anyone else that had NMO. I scoured the internet. I did find someone in the UK, and then I did find a doctor that did an NMO study at UCSF. And so I reached out to both and was just asking, like, I had so many questions because I didn't, I'd never heard of the disease. No one I knew locally knew of the disease. Even my doctors here really weren't aware of it. So it was very scary because I'm a kind of person that would much rather know the bad news then not know what it is because at least I can start processing and then figure out a plan. But not knowing what I had and being constantly on MS medication that wasn't working was very frustrating and very scary. So I was actually grateful when they correctly diagnosed me and I was put on proper treatment that fortunately, since my diagnosis has helped me be attack free. NMO, I would say back then it was considered very rare, but I think more, it was mostly because people didn't know about it. So a lot of people were misdiagnosed with MS, even though they have NMO. Physically, your, your, your body, your ability to move freely has returned, but the vision has not. Correct. I'm just curious why. And then I want to learn more about, so how do you as a young lady begin navigating the world that is made perfectly for those of us with sight at a time where you no longer have yours? My doctor said that the optic nerve is very sensitive. So when it gets inflamed so many times, it's very hard for the optic nerve to heal. Right. So fortunately, you know, my, for the most part, my spinal cord has healed. Although in my MRIs, you know, the doctors tell me you can see some plaques on my spine. So there is some scar tissue from the times that I had spinal cord inflammation, but my optic nerves are definitely atrophied. So unless they come up with, you know, advanced stem cell research and they're able to do an optic nerve transplant, I will not be able to see again in my lifetime. But I think adapting to the vision loss was a struggle. It was one of those things where it, it wasn't even a sudden vision loss. It was very gradual. And I, I don't know which is harder because for me, like one day I could see perfectly fine. And then maybe in a month I saw a little less. And then once I got used to that, I'll say, okay, I figured out like how to, you know, I couldn't drive anymore, but I can still walk around without a cane. I can still see things. I can enlarge the font on my computer to read emails on my computer. And then I get used to that. And then, you know, maybe a year later, I would lose more vision. And I'm like, okay, well now I need to learn orientation mobility, how to get around with a white cane. Now I have to learn how to use an, a screen reader. So for me, it was actually a, a long path to learning how to live with vision loss because my vision loss was so gradual. And, you know, I don't know which way is harder, but I mean, that was the path that I had to deal with. And it, it was definitely hard because as soon as I 
got used to one level of vision, it would get worse. And then I would have to relearn how to do the same things. Was there a time as you were slowly having things pulled away from you? You know, first you can't drive and then you can't navigate the streets as easily by yourself. And then eventually you can't walk without a cane and it just, you keep losing things. Was there a time where you felt like, gosh, I'm, I'm done. I'm just, I'm, I'm going to quit somehow. I felt that a lot. And I think it was almost with each time that my vision would decrease some, I would feel that. I knew in my deep down inside that I wasn't going to quit because I'm just not a quitter. But of course, most of me was just like, how much more of this can I take? I value my independence a lot. Part of it is because I grew up as an only child and having lost my mom at an early age, it just forced me to be independent. So I didn't like relying on other people. So it was a very tough lesson for me to learn actually. Um, but eventually I just, you know, had to navigate and had to adapt, but it was hard. And I, I did want to give up many times. What do you begin doing as, as the eyesight begins to fade and you recognize that you're going to have to go through the world in this new manner. How do you begin getting ready for that? You know, like not only mentally, which is I think critical, but tactically, you know, like you have to somehow figure out where your clothes are going to be, how mm -hmm. to navigate your own home, how to eventually shop and everything else. How do you begin navigating life that is so radically different than the one that you grew up knowing? It's funny because my friends joke that my memory is so good. They always say I have an elephant memory and that I'm extremely organized and detail oriented that they, they joke that they say that you know, Christine, you are actually kind of made to lose your vision because I, ever since I was young, I think my mom's drilled into me, like the importance of being neat and tidy and organized. So ever since I was a child, my closet was always organized with shirts on one end. And it was always ordered in a certain color, like rainbow color. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Part of me was like, sort of the change wasn't too difficult in the term, in the ways of like organization, but the other things like mentally preparing, no one can really mentally prepare you for that. I think you just get thrust into it and you have to find a support network and a community uh, and you have to go through the grieving process yourself. And I would say what helped me was finding resources on a local level. So I live in the state of Texas and there's a department at the time it was called the Department of Assistive and Rehabilitative Services. And they help people who end up with a disability adapt to in independent life and gain employment again in, in their life with a disability. So for me, I was able to find that agency and then, you know, they offered lessons on how to learn to read Braille, how to use technology with screen readers to navigate the internet. I learned how to get around with a white cane, how to use public transportation, how to get on and off an escalator without vision. That was actually super scary. Now I do it like it's nothing, but I remember the first time, at the time I had a little bit more vision, but I was preparing for additional vision loss. So my instructor blindfolded me and gave me a cane and was trying to get me to go on and off an escalator. And I just remember being terrified. But it, I think it's these things in life where you just kind of have to thrust yourself outside of your comfort zone and then that's how you learn to build confidence and learn how to conquer things. It's, it's almost like forcing yourself to do things that you fear or that you are uncomfortable with. Christine, sometimes we hear stories articulated by people like you that make it seem almost, almost easy. Like, yeah, I could do that. So for those <laughs> of us who might be making the mistake right now of thinking, of course, anybody could do this. I want you to imagine just for a moment that I'm going to task you with leaving the podcast channel for a moment, blindfolding yourself, leaving whatever room you're in, and just go quickly make yourself a peanut butter jelly sandwich, and then come on back in and we'll listen to the rest of it. The entire time you're blindfolded, you're navigating the kitchen, then back into your family room, you're going to find the buttons, and you're going to do it all without hurting yourself. And that's in your home. That's before you leave your home and find the bus and go to the mall and get to the escalator and ride up to the next storefront. What you have done in your life is nothing short of remarkable. And I'm in awe of it. I'm also in awe of your cooking. I like the idea of thinking I can cook. My children and my wife say otherwise. You now are mastering the kitchen unable to see the ingredients in front of you. Would you share with us how you began that journey when you no longer could see what was in front of you around the kitchen to make your first meal? Talk about that. Maybe the first meal you made and then the second, and then how you slowly became not just okay, but 
extraordinary. Well, I think, John, you described it exactly how it is. It, it's really about taking the small step. My first meal that I tried to make after I started losing my vision was a peanut butter jelly sandwich. And I found it so frustrating because I could not get the peanut butter and the jelly on the two slices of bread neatly, be able to line the two slices of bread together. Instead, I had a crooked sandwich with jelly all over my counter. And that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And I just remember crying because I thought, you know, just the year before I was cooking an entire Thanksgiving meal for my family. And now I couldn't even make a PBJ, something as simple as that. So it was very frustrating. I threw that sandwich away and I felt sorry for myself for a few days. And then, you know, I lived alone at the time. So I knew that I had to feed myself somehow. So I think I just started off slowly and then I would cut up fruit and then I would say, okay, I'm able to kind of use a knife. So let me try to make scrambled eggs on the stove. Mm. And then once I figured that out, like it wasn't perfect, there was definitely food that fell out of the pan onto the stove, but those things, you know, don't really harm anyone. It's just the part of the process of learning. So once I took these small steps and started realizing that I could succeed, it gave me the courage to take the next step. So I think that's what's important is that when you go through any of these sorts of challenges in life, you really need to celebrate the small victories and yeah. realize that, hey, where I am now is better than yesterday or a week ago or a month ago or a year ago. And when you realize that you are making progress, that helps build the confidence that, hey, maybe I can take on more and more things. So for me, it wasn't really until... I kind of looked back in hindsight and then I was cooking full Thanksgiving meals again that I was like, Hey, a couple years ago, I couldn't even make a PBJ. And then now look at where I am. But of course there were a lot of steps in between, like, you know, I had to learn to make instant noodles again on the stove, like boiling water or making fried eggs or cutting up vegetables or peeling a carrot and all of these small victories that yes, they weren't as perfect maybe as when I did have vision, but if I kept at it, I got better and better. And when I noticed that I was making progress, I think that's the most important thing is to, to help give you that confidence and that encouragement to continue moving forward. Honestly, I could sit back uh, and j just sitting here listening to you and ask question after question after question around learning and taking the next step and then the next step. But we're going to take a big leap uh, into Master Chef with Gordon Ramsay, third season. Whose idea was it for you to even consider yourself as an applicant for this type of event? So it was my husband, John. He, on occasion, watches Gordon Ramsay's shows and thinks Gordon is very entertaining. Uh, so <laughs> He's not the one we... being yelled at by him. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But, you know, John and I have a, we both have a sense of humor. So when we found out MasterChef was auditioning in Austin, which is about a two and a half hour drive from where we lived in Houston, John was like, you need to go audition. He's like, if anything, you need to have Gordon call you a donkey and send you home. So I was like, okay. So at the time I was in graduate school getting a master's degree in creative writing. And I think as an artist, you try to live as much of life as possible and experience everything you can so that it feeds your creativity. So I thought if anything, I would go audition. Yep. And, you know, as far as I would make it, I didn't think I would win the whole thing, but I thought it would be a good experience to perhaps write a story down the line or an essay or something. So I was like, okay, why not? Let's try it. I do like cooking. John drove me to Austin. I auditioned. I made it past the first three rounds that were just on the local level. And then at that point, after that, you know, there was a lot of other things that you have to go through before they say, okay, you're going to come to LA and meet the real judges and do the top 100 audition. Right. So I have to attribute it to my sadistic husband who <laughs> encouraged me to audition for MasterChef. But in addition to that, like, you know, I had friends that I would cook for and they're like, you cook so well and you don't even have vision. Like how amazing is your story? Like, I think they all encouraged me and said that people need to find out about my life. First time Gordon Ramsay sees you, uh, his <laughs> mouth opens. Uh, and I'm sure this has been described to you a million times, but he looks at you like, you know, what is this? What, what is this not? Get out of my kitchen. He doesn't say it, but you see it on him. You see it on him. What was your feeling as you're walking in there, getting ready to see the master chef himself for the very first time? 
I remember that time very well. You know, I've never done any television then. So everything was so new to me, just being on a set, you know, we had to push my cart of food down to this long, dark hallway in a warehouse that was like cold and dark. Then the doors open. And I just remember like being blinded by all of the lights. And it's still hard for me sometimes to acclimate to a set is just all of the bright lights that are on you for camera. So I just remember the door lifting and then all of a sudden there's all these lights flooding my vision. And already because I you know, don't have vision, my eyes are very sensitive. So if there's too much light or too little light, it's very hard for me to make out anything. Um, so I just remember being very intimidated, very nervous. I had no idea where anything was. I was led to the little kitchen island that I was going to finish plating my dish at. I hear the judges talking to me. I have no idea what their facial expressions are. <laughs> and I don't even know who's in the room. I assume there's cameras. I assume there might be some crew. I was just so nervous, I remember. Um, and I was just like, oh my gosh, like, I don't even know how I'm gonna get this food on this plate. I can't see anything. I don't know where the sink is, but I just wanted to just get through it, get the food on my plate and just let them try it. And I probably would have been okay if they were just like, your food sucks, just go home and be like, oh gosh, thank God I don't have to keep doing this. But yeah, I mean, it was just very nerve wracking. I've never been, like I said, like done any television, let alone cook for these judges and in a kitchen that I have am not familiar with at all. The word judge is apt. You know, the word judge is not necessarily uh, always a term of being sweet and mild mannered. Judge <laughs> Gordon Ramsay is known as being one of the most critical of judges ever. And I don't think it's an act. For those who have never seen the show, ne never heard about Gordon Ramsay, would you just describe at least his brand? He is a British chef who is world renowned, has multiple Michelin stars, treats everybody as though they should aspire to be a Michelin star chef. Very loud, very <laughs> crude, very honest. And even if it means, you know, being abrasive and cussing at you, he will tell you how it is and what he thinks of your food. Most certainly he did not grade you on a curve. Uh, for those <laughs> who have not somehow seen season three, you go on to the finals. You learned a lot that season. What, what did you learn about yourself? I learned a few things. One thing was you just fake it till you make it. So <laughs> my co-contestant, Josh, who was a co-finalist with me, I will always remember something he said that was kind of funny was he was like, Christine, it's you and me. You just need to go in there and act like you have the biggest set of balls in the room. <laughs> and that was really kind of something was like, yeah, you as a, as an Asian American woman yeah. with a disability, I suffer a lot from imposter syndrome, even to this day. And back then, before I knew what it was called, I definitely felt that all through MasterChef. But what I learned is that if you believe what you're putting on the plate is true to you and the best that you can do, then that's all you you really need to, to do or to think. It doesn't matter if other people don't believe the same. If you believe in it and you're behind it, then that's what really matters. So and that's what I mean by kind of like you fake it till you make it. It's like, you just try your best. And if you believe it, then eventually you'll get there. Yeah. The other thing I learned is that in spite of my disability, I was able to compete with the best of them. Yes, there were some things that I had a disadvantage uh, I was at a disadvantage, but there were other things that I felt I was at an advantage. For example, because I couldn't see, I was never concerned with what the other contestants were cooking at their station. I think for some of them, because they could see, they would look over and be like, oh, so-and-so is making something very advanced. I need to change up the dish I'm making because mine seems too simple. But for me, I never knew what someone else was making. So all I did was concentrate on what I was making. And so I wasn't really distracted by what other people were doing or by my fellow competitors. And I think that helped because I wouldn't second guess myself as much and change up my plan halfway through the challenge. And I think that helped because I think when you get flustered, you don't perform as well. So that is something else I learned. And it eventually that helped me build self-confidence as well, which I think is extremely important in life. And, you know, especially with the existence of imposter syndrome, especially, like I said, with me being an Asian woman trying to make it in the culinary field, which is 
predominantly male and having a vision impairment, these are things that without that confidence would crush me. To have that self-confidence makes you not afraid to use your voice and to feel that your voice matters. Christine, if, if you just advanced into Austin through round one, I think people would celebrate you. You made it through three rounds. You made it through round after round after round of the television version of this. Were you amazed every single time you'd hear the name Christine called as, as you advance from round to round? Honestly, yes. My philosophy, I think because I've been disappointed in life so many times, like for example, with my mom dying and with losing my vision, my philosophy is always expect the worst, hope for the best. <laughs> so every single time there would be a challenge, I'm expecting the worst and I'm expecting to be sent home or to lose the challenge. So of course, every single time that I would move on to the next challenge, I was shocked and amazed and super grateful. Well, you make it to the finals. You know, I'm going to ask you, but when, I forget who won. You'll have to remind me. Uh, but as you heard the name that was announced, how did you feel? <laughs> that was probably one of the biggest shocks of my life. It's definitely in the top three. I, I was completely surprised. I have no idea. Now that I think about it, I have no idea what was going through my head. But I remember probably the second thought was like, thank God this television show is over. <laughs> and then I can get my cell phone back. I can get my life back. I, it was just very grueling. Like people think that these competitions on television are glamorous, but they're so not. And I was just exhausted. And I just remember being so appreciative that the competition was over. And of course, thinking, you know, aside from thinking it's over, like, I, I don't think the full notion of realizing that I had won set right. in until 48 hours later. I was still in shock. Well, you did win. And it was an amazing <laughs> victory. And for a guy like Ramsey to be moved to tears, you've done something <laughs> special, not only with what you were able to cook, but the manner in which you cooked it up. You, uh, you've built a remarkable life. And you and I talked about this right before we hit record. One of the things that I've heard you say now twice, and it amazed me both times, and I want to hear it for the third time, and I'd like our friends listening and viewing to, to hear it as well. The question is, if you could go back in time and push away this diagnosis and have the vision return and have, in quotes, a normal life, would you do it? John, your husband, has asked you that question several times. You've answered it the same way every time he brings it up. What's your answer to him? I think about it to see if my answer changes every time I get asked, but I always say, no, I wouldn't change it. And I wouldn't ask for my vision back because my life has actually gotten better after my vision loss. It's taught me gumption. It's taught me to be fearless. I've gained so much more having lost my vision than, you know, if I were the person I used to be with vision, I feel like it's stretched me. It's definitely challenged me, but with the biggest challenges in life come the greatest rewards. And I feel like my life is much fuller now. I reached for things that I love and that I dreamed of, like writing and cooking, which I would not have done. I probably would have lived a very safe life continuing to, to work in the corporate world had I not lost my vision. So it's really pushed me to live my life to the fullest. So no, I would not go back and ask for my vision back. You're lucky you're in Houston and I'm in St. Louis or I'd reach across and give you a big old hug right now because <laughs> it's just so attractive and so awesome. And I love the word gumption and you are, you know, when I, I'm going to look it up later on, but your, your picture will be right there. So the, the picture, <laughs> Christine Ha of gumption, you married, John, you've got a dog named George, you're running you know, in your spare time, you're running two restaurants in the middle of a global pandemic. Tell us about what the restaurants are and uh, what we can expect once we get there. What, do you, what, what's, what, what should we order off the menu? My first restaurant is called The Blind Goat. I named it that because I'm known as the blind cook and I'm born the year of the goat. So my Eastern Zodiac sign is the goat. So The Blind Goat is a modern Vietnamese gastropub. We sell uh, modernized street foods of Vietnam. Like I love when I go to Vietnam and just eat street food. I actually like doing that in any country I visit because you kind of get like this rustic, humble food of the local culture. Yes. So for me, you know, I, I do Vietnamese street food, but I kind of, you know, give it a twist um, being a Texan as well. So there's some local twist to that in my food at the Blind Goat. Uh, and that was opened up before the pandemic. 
Uh, Xin Zhao, which means hello in Vietnamese, was opened up a few months ago. So that was during the pandemic. That is a modern Vietnamese restaurant. So it's a little bit, um, I wouldn't say it's upscale at all because I, I, I'm the kind of person that likes to be able to, you know, wear whatever to a restaurant. Like I don't want to have to dress up. I, I want to be able to welcome anybody and everybody to our restaurant. So But I would say that the food, it is a modern take on Vietnamese food with a lot of local twists as well. We have our own smokers. So we smoke our own meats in-house like duck, beef rib. We do that in-house and then we add that to our Vietnamese menu. So that one is a standalone restaurant and it has a full bar program. So we do some fun cocktails with Southeast Asian ingredients that would pair well with the food. So that's what Sin Chao's all about. Um, so those are my two restaurants right now, the Blind Goat and Sinjiao. How are you doing in the middle of the pandemic with everyone struggling? And recently, as of the recording of this, Texas received this massive cold front that froze pipes and shut down the power grid and, and everything else. So in general, Christine, how are you doing professionally? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, Sean, it's, it's been tough. It's been a tough year with this pandemic, as it has been for everyone. I don't ever like to make my, you know, the challenges that I come across as being harder or more important than other people's challenges, because I believe that everyone has their own battles to fight. Um, and so, you know, but I am, I do like to be honest and it, it has been a tough year as, you know, many restaurant owners know, or many people who have lost their jobs know, uh, this pandemic has really been a struggle for so many people across the world. And that doesn't exclude restaurants. So for us, for example, because the Blind Goat, you know, was open before and during the pandemic, I know how our, our sales numbers have done. So I remember as soon as the pandemic hit and we had to shut down, we, and we pivoted immediately to doing only curbside pickup and delivery and our sales dropped by 80%. And then now it's, it's back up to about 50%. So we're still only making about half of our revenue that we used to make before the pandemic. Um, so it's hard because you're also trying to balance public health and the health and safety of your staff. Um, and everyone's just pretty stressed out. And so as an owner of the restaurants, like I feel the struggle and it's definitely hard, but I haven't lost hope and faith that things will get better. Um, especially with the rollout of these vaccines. I think if, you know, people are willing to take the vaccine, I think it will help. And hopefully sooner rather than later, we can get back to a new normal where, you know, we're not all living in quarantine as much. The first place I'll go once that happens is down to Houston to visit with you personally. And I'm looking forward to it. So you, you have my commitment around that and I bring in some followers and listeners with me. So uh, we have seven questions that we wrap up every podcast with. There's seven rapid fire questions. But before I get there, the final question, as you mentioned, John, I, I hold on to faith and hope and joy. And I, I, I'm grasping on, I'm fighting the good fights and I'm, I'm battling forward. For those right now who are beginning to lose their hope and their faith and their joy, and they feel like this battle they're fighting, whether it's you know, financially or in a relationship or against a diagnosis, whatever the thing is, everybody's got one and they're not sure they're going to win theirs. What, what encouragement would you offer them right now? I don't like saying things will get better because it's a promise that I can't hold. I like authenticity and being genuine. So what I would say is I know it really sucks right now. I don't know exactly what it feels like to be in your shoes, but I've had my own struggles. I'm going through the pandemic as well. I know that life can be very, very hard. But if you find and surround yourself with the right people, the right support network, be open and be willing to ask for help, that things will slowly get better. Um, and it really is a matter of perspective. I've survived a lot of things. And I know that, you know, you as a human being have a lot more strength than you would give yourself credit for. So if I'm able to survive, you're able to survive. And I have complete and utter faith in you as a fellow human being that you will find the strength to make it through as well. Mm. Christian, I could spend several hours visiting with you and we will sometime <laughs> in your restaurant. But until then, let me guide you through the seven questions so that you can start cooking for those restaurants that you lead forward. The first question of the Live Inspired Seven is, 
what is the best or most influential book that you've ever read? Oh man, these seven rapid fire questions are hard. I can tell already. Yeah, they get worse too. So just, you know, take a sip of whatever's in front of you. Let's go. I will say Angela's Ashes by Frank McCourt. That is his memoir of growing up as uh, in a poor Irish household. I find his um, his gumption and his fight to survive uh, inspirational. What is one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little girl growing up in Houston that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? This almost contradicts what I've said lately because I said that I've become more fearless as I've lost my vision, but I think as a child, we tend to be more fearless as well. And we're, we're less apologetic about the things we do. So I would say I was less apologetic then and concerned about other people than I am now. If your home caught fire and George and John and all your loved ones and pets are all out safe and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item safely, what's the one thing that really matters to you enough that that's the thing you would grab? It would be my MacBook Air because it has all of my digital photos and I use it every day and all my recipes are on there. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anybody, living or dead, who do you want to be seated next to? Mother Teresa. Wow. What's the question you would ask Mother Teresa? <laughs> What's life like on the other side? <laughs> uh, I'm going to make you do the impossible. Now slide yourself into her, uh, her little outfit. What do you think her response is? I'm sure you have a guess. What do you think Mother Teresa's response? What's life like on the other side? And what does she, what does she say back? It's nicer than it is on earth. <laughs> What's the best advice that your mother or Mother Teresa or anybody else, including Chef Gordon Ramsay ever gave you? So what's the best advice that Christine Ha has ever received? Believe in yourself. What would you tell your 20 year old self? Don't care about the superficial things. You need to find out who your true friends are. Wow. And the final question, my friend, for Christine Ha, Master Chef, is this. It has been said that all great people, and we're listening to one right now in the form of Christine Ha, all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. Christine, how do you want your one sentence to read? Christine Ha led the best life and was the best person that she could be in the time that she lived. Well, Christine Ha, you did indeed leave, live, I think, the best life that you possibly could have lived in spite or maybe specifically because of some of the challenges laid in front of you. I've been honored getting to know your story and preparing for this interview. This was an honor for me to have you on our show today, and I'm looking forward to becoming a friend with you going forward into life. Thanks so much, John. It was a pleasure. My friends, that is Christine Ha, and my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. Live inspired.